Welcome to the 13th Oxpeace Annual Conference, which this year explores the theme, Peace in the Nuclear Era, Threats, Treaties, and Public Understanding. In normal times, we would have a whole day, but we will try to pack into this morning a look at the present state of nuclear treaties and capabilities, an assessment of upcoming threats and opportunities, and a look at the present state of public understanding and education, and thus the role of civil society in influencing the, the future. Please use the Q&A to send in your questions to speakers, and the conference will be recorded. The podcast will be available via the Oxpeace website uh, in due course. It usually takes a few weeks to get there. And please just Google Oxpeace and you will get through quite easily to the Oxpeace web pages. I want to thank especially the three people who have put today's programme together, that is Lord Alderdice, Christopher Watson and Jeremy Cunningham. And before I hand over to Lord Alderdice, John Alderdice, to chair the opening session, I'd like to bring, we would like to bring you a short introduction to Oxpeace. Oxpeace is a multidisciplinary network across Oxford University to promote the study of peace and of peacemaking, peace building, and peacekeeping. So it brings together academics, researchers, students, practitioners, and policymakers from across the world. Literally every subject is drawn into the conversation to really connect ideas in a way that has not happened before. And not just to connect the ideas and have the research and the thought leadership, but also then to move from those ideas to action. One of the focal points during the year for Oxpeace is its annual conference. So in picking a topic, it helps develop that subject in respect to peace, but it also engages a broader network that then in turn helps develop new ideas and research opportunities as well as practical action. The compelling vision for Oxpeace is to establish an endowed chair in perpetuity at Oxford, which would be transformative in terms of its intellectual reach and practical impact. I think Oxford has a contribution to make in terms of academic rigor uh, and understanding that would really benefit the world of peace studies, but that in turn would benefit Oxford itself because it would bring people here who are not just activists, uh, but academics, and indeed senior political figures from around the world who are involved in addressing conflict issues. So I now hand over to Lord Alderdice to chair the first session. 
Liz, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much for the introduction. Um, and I'm really delighted that Oxpeace is addressing this issue today. It's not, of course, a new one for Oxpeace, but for some time we've been preoccupied with other issues. Indeed, people globally have been preoccupied, for example, with the question of climate change and the catastrophe that is unfolding before our eyes year by year. But one of the things that troubled me was that, although it's absolutely right to concentrate on that from, uh, from time to time, um, the question of nuclear, if it's spun out of control, it could bring us a nuclear winter before the end of this year, not, not in five or 10 or 15 years time. And of course, even over the last few days, we've seen a violent outbreak uh, in Israel and the Palestinian Authority, which involves a nuclear state. And there are many other nuclear states around the world uh, where we have anxieties and concerns about the fact that they have these extraordinary weapons of, of mass destruction, which could bring not just civilization, but human life to an end on this planet. And yet we seem to be focusing much less on that uh, than, on, uh, than on other issues. And so I'm delighted that Oxpeace decided to have this event today, and I think we all look forward to it. I'm particularly pleased to be uh, kicking off the first session here with two colleagues, uh, Lord Brown of Ladyton, Des Brown, an old friend and colleague, um, and Dr. Nick Ritchie. So let me just introduce the two of them. Um, some of you will know one or other, and some of you will know both of them, uh, but not everyone will. So let me just briefly introduce them. Then I'm going to invite them, take their interventions, and then we're going to have some conversations and Q&A. Well, Des Brown became uh, a member of the House of Lords in 2010 after a career first in law in his native Scotland and then in the House of Commons as a member of parliament where he also served in a range of ministerial posts. And I first came to know Des uh, in the early 2000s when he was a minister at the Northern Ireland office and was involved in uh, negotiations there with a number of, of the parties. He went on to serve in a number of senior roles including cabinet level roles and the most relevant of those for us today was his time as Secretary of State for Defence, with responsibility for the Trident programme, of course, uh, between 2006 and 2008. Subsequently, he served as Vice Chairman of the Washington DC-based Nuclear Threat Initiative, and he's convener of both the European Leadership Network and the top-level group of UK parliamentarians for multilateral nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation. He's a signatory of Global Zero, a non-profit international initiative for the elimination of all nuclear weapons worldwide, and a committed activist on the question of peace in various parts of the world. And he and I, we often find ourselves in the same debate or the same parliamentary question on a peace issue in various parts of the world. But of course, the nuclear question is an important preoccupation of his. Dr. Nick Ritchie uh, researches and teaches in the areas of international relations and international security at the University of York, where he is a senior lecturer in international security in the Department of Politics. His particular focus is on nuclear disarmament, proliferation and arms control, and US and UK national security. After completing his PhD thesis at the University of Bradford in 2007 on the evolution of US nuclear weapons policy after the Cold War, Nick spent four years researching and teaching at Bradford's a very well-known Department of Peace Studies before joining York in 2011. He previously worked for five years at the Oxford Research Group, an independent NGO working with policymakers and independent experts on the challenges 
of global security. And I was an advisor to ORG for some years until sadly it closed down in February of, of this year, one of many victims of the financial stringency during this time of pandemic. Uh, but while ORG may not be there, Nick Ritchie is very much uh, alive and operational, and we look forward to, uh, to Nick's contribution. Yes, if I might come to you first of all for, for your intervention on this. And I know that uh, I just want to remind people that you had advised colleagues uh, to, uh, uh, to uh, link to and download the uh, Nuclear Perils in a New Era uh, document, which is very recently produced. I hope uh, colleagues will have done that, but if not, uh, you may want to look at that subsequently. But Des, uh, in, in, in normal times, we'd say you have the floor, but now you have you have the mic and you have the video camera, and we look forward to what you have to say. Okay, thank you very much, John. Um, it's an honour to be asked to speak at this um, important conference. Um, I am an admirer of the work of Oxpeace, and it's a particular honour to share this virtual platform with you and uh, Nick Ritchie. Both of my know, both of you, I know as you've as you've um, made clear uh, our relationship, but in my view, you're both admirable peacemakers. So thank you also for uh, circulating Stephen Miller's essay. I mean, I hope that some of you have taken advantage of the opportunity to read it, but we'll understand if you've not been able so to do. It's not essential that you have in order to hear what I have to say, but I think it is a, it's, it's a comprehensive, I think, but accessible account of the history of nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons policy and offers an excellent foundation, I think, for your deliberations today. So for, for my part, I want to focus, um, you know, bearing in mind who I am, I mean, I am a, a politician who has been involved in, in, in policy, uh, you know, and how we can progress on addressing the risks posed by nuclear weapons and policy, and how we must and can achieve global disarmament, resulting in the removal of what I believe is not only a significant, but, but perhaps an existential global threat. If I may at the outset, I shall draw from my own experience, which you've already referred to, John, and start from 2006, when um, a little bit to my surprise, I was made Secretary of State for Defence. Um, the appointment of a former human rights lawyer to this post was a surprise to many, I have to say, not the least to me. So the transition from uh, Chief Secretary to the Treasury, which I then was, to the MOD, had life-changing consequences for me, for my family, for my parliamentary and constituency office staff, and my wider social circle, and some of this will be with me for the rest of my life It was and is multifaceted, but I wanted to just concentrate on one aspect of it for a short time today, a couple of sentences only. I was not prepared for, and nothing could have prepared me for, assuming responsibility for the awesome destructive power of nuclear weapons. I agreed to take this job um, on the condition that I would be allowed to pursue opportunities for disarmament. I was then, and I am now uh, of the strong view that disarmament is an essential element of improved human security. I suspect that no one who's here today will need any persuading of that, so I move on. So shortly after I was appointed in January 2007, an important essay appeared in the Wall Street Journal. Authored by four American statesmen, George Schultz, Bill Perry, Henry Kissinger and Sam Nunn, whom, Sam Nunn whom I, all of whom I came to know well, uh, it laid out the vision and steps, a series of practical actions for achieving the goal of a world free of nuclear weapons and a credible argument that in a rapidly changing world, even if, even if nuclear weapons had kept the peace during the Cold War, they'd become a clear and present danger. And that was the beginning for what is now almost a universally shared assessment that the probability of nuclear weapon use is increasing. 
and in some people's views, you know, uh, um, uh, more probable than it ever has been in their lifetime. So these views immediately were endorsed by former statesmen and women across Europe and the globe. And in June 9, uh, 2007, in a speech at the Center for, um, sorry, at the uh, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, Margaret Beckett, the then Foreign Secretary, embraced them, becoming the first representative of any government so to do. She announced that the UK would lead the world and become a disarmament laboratory. And on the 5th of February 2008, I became the first ever Minister of Defence to address the Conference on Disarmament in Geneva. I think I, think I may be the only one who's ever done that. And set out in, in a speech entitled, Laying the Foundations for Multilateral Disarmament, what being a disarmament laboratory could mean. My speech contained the following paragraphs, and I quote them to you. Um, as the preamble to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty makes clear, all states parties to the treaty should work towards the easing of international tension and the strengthening of trust between states in order to facilitate the cessation of the manufacture of nuclear weapons, the elimination of all the existing stockpiles, and the elimination from national arsenals of nuclear weapons and means of delivery. The next steps in this short uh, chronology were extraordinary. Both candidates for US president embraced the vision and steps in 2007 and 2008, and President Obama made this the centerpiece of his first major, major foreign policy address in Prague. It, with some modesty and a little pride, I say that the UK's role in this effort was significant. Among his last actions as Prime Minister, Gordon Brown set out a roadmap to disarmament and successive governments of both other parties have followed the path of incremental disarmament in the UK. That is until this year. In March, the government published its integrated review, which reversed that direction of travel and ditched the previous domestic cross-party consensus on reducing the number of nuclear weapons. The IR called for increasing the cap in the UK's overall nuclear weapons stockpile from not more than 180 by the mid-2020s to no more than 260 warheads. 44% increase from the previous target and a 15% increase from the current level of 225. Also, the government announced it would no longer publish details of its nuclear stockpile and missile numbers and expanded the potential scenarios where it would consider the use of nuclear weapons to include threats posed by emerging technologies. For more than a decade, the UK had been reducing numbers of warheads. Now, apparently there are evolving threats that we do not yet understand, but that we intend to deter with nuclear weapons. And apparently we need more warheads to do the job. In the absence of transparency, of a comprehensive explanation or justification for this change, we're not able to do anything other than speculate about whether that analysis is right. All countries are threatened by the same emerging technologies. If the UK says nuclear weapons are an acceptable response, then why should not other countries, both nuclear and non-nuclear, follow the same line of reasoning? That logic seems to have been lost on the government. This decision apparently was made without consultation. There was no consultation with Parliament or anyone outside a very small circle of politicians, military officers and officials, and apparently not with the government of our strongest ally, the US where President Biden is a strong proponent of reducing the role of nuclear weapons in national security policies, including as an advocate for sole purpose. 
that nuclear weapons have only one role, deterring nuclear use or the threat of it. Our position is now the antithesis of Biden's. The UK's nuclear policy is more aligned with the Trump administration's policies. I think perhaps there may have been consultation with the US, but it was with the Trump administration. The government approach is illustrative of the secrecy surrounding these weapons. The propensity of governments to make decisions without serious or sometimes any consultation, or indeed explanation of the thinking or the rationale for their decision. We should care about this and it's important to be clear why we should care. So let's be clear. Many experts are telling us that the risk of a nuclear weapon being used is increasing. The doomsday clock is now inching nearer and nearer to midnight every year. And the consequences of the use of just one nuclear weapon against a major city, be it London, Washington, Tokyo, Mumbai, or Moscow, would be widespread and devastating. Were a warhead to explode in London, it would likely destroy the entire city. When Little Boy was dropped in Hiroshima in 1945, approximately 90 to 120,000 people were killed. Temperatures near the explosion were estimated to be 300 degrees Celsius. Those not killed by the immediate impact of the firestorm eventually and excruciatingly were killed by exposure to huge amounts of radiation. The warheads that bombed Japan achieved blasts significantly lower than those of today's weapons. Let's also remember that no government is capable of an effective humanitarian response following the use of a nuclear weapon. As the world continues to struggle with COVID-19, it gives us a small glimpse, a window into the horror that could and would unfold were there to be a single nuclear weapon incident. Even a regional war with nuclear weapons would be a cat catastrophe, the likes of which we have never known. Since 1945, we've had, an unaccept we've had unacceptably close encounters with nuclear war, and today we're entering a whole new phase of risk driven by nuclear modernization and technological change and rising tensions among nuclear powers and the demise of Cold War era arms control agreements. For example, today, because of the nature of existing postures and the possibility of a, of a hijacking, a technical malfunction or a misperception of an incoming attack, coupled, coupled with a use it or lose it mentality, we're under risk that miscommunication or miscalculation could lead to a nuclear exchange. With almost 2,000 warheads capable of launching on relatively short notice, modernization and technological change are reducing the timelines for decision makers and adding much further uncertainty to the decision making process. For example, the introduction of artificial intelligence and machine learning in the nuclear decision making process has raised concerns whether a computer system would be able to differentiate between a nuclear or conventional payload. This tracks with the rise of dual use dual-capable missiles, many of which are being developed to travel at hypersonic speeds, further reducing decision times. The election of President Biden and early exchanges in nuclear policy between the US and Russia bring hope. Presidents Biden and Putin agreed to extend the New START Treaty for five years, ensuring verifiable limits on the number of deployed strategic nuclear weapons in their arsenals. Apparently, these two governments believe that continuing transparency in numbers of warheads and delivery systems is essential to strategic stability. We, for our part, appear to believe the opposite. The two leaders are expected to meet after President Biden attends the G7 summit in early June. 
providing essential high-level dialogue between the two nuclear powers. Our commitment to advance strategic stability and begin talks on the next phase of arms control would be a positive step to halting what is looking like a new arms race. The US is also engaging with Iran to revive the Iran deal, which would ensure Iran does not acquire a nuclear weapon. There's also movement in the international community. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons entered into force in January of this year. This is the first legally binding treaty with the goal of eliminating nuclear weapons. Although the nuclear weapon states and the NATO states have not signed the treaty, it is indicative of the impatience and frustration and the lack of progress on nuclear disarmament and increasing nuclear risks among most of the countries of the world. These are positive signs. However, it's important to ask ourselves why it's so difficult to give up our reliance on these weapons. The world has changed drastically from the 1980s when nuclear deterrence theory was developed by a small group of analysts for a different and simpler world with fewer nuclear weapons and weapons and slower delivery technology. Nuclear weapons policies and postures have hardly changed and yet our societies face a different range of risks, including pandemics, climate change, mass migration, drug trafficking, organized crime, cyber warfare, terrorism, and proliferation, not only of nuclear weapons, but of other weapons. We are at an important time in history and risks of continuing to rely on nuclear weapons is heavily outweighing any perceived security benefits. I'd like to highlight four observations of how the nuclear system operates and the actions we can take. First, like pandemics and climate change, nuclear weapons are a global systemic problem. All countries must live under the threats posed by nuclear weapons, yet have no real control over policies which remain in the hands of governments, the governments of the nuclear weapons possessing states only. Just as we have to problem solve and take collective action to resolve global warming, the same is true for nuclear weapons. We must approach this as an intractable problem that we need to solve so we do not burden future generations with the costs and risks of the current system. Civil society organizations and the recently entered into force TPNW have focused efforts on the impact of such weapons and tried to broaden out this issue into a global movement. This is an important step in turning the debate from one focused on national security to one of global impact. Like COVID-19, none of us are safe until we are all safe. Second, we have lost sight of the vision of a world without nuclear weapons. We are no longer talking about how we should disarm. Instead, the debate has reverted to whether we should disarm. We need to create a realistic and credible vision of what a world without nuclear weapons would look like, what are the necessary verification provisions, governance structures and controls over the fuel cycle. Without a credible shared vision, we're unlikely to have serious engagement with reluctant governments and how we get there. Third, states that possess nuclear weapons have so far avoided serious engagement with the rest of the world on the broad nuclear risks of continued reliance on these weapons. Even more concerning, these states are not currently engaging constructively with one another on how to mitigate and manage these risks. Tensions have been high between the US and Russia and the US and China, and consequently dialogue has been halted while risks of nuclear weapons use increase. And finally, we need to think about the nuclear narrative, the way we talk about the nuclear weapon. For a long time, this subject has become increasingly inaccessible to the public. Experts and governments use technical language in a way that removes the abilities of publics to engage and by default sustains an environment of secrecy. We need a real global di discourse about the future of them. And this, in my view, is where Oxpeace comes in. 
As we're facing a systemic problem, we need broader ownership. Nuclear weapons do not exist in isolation from the rest of the world. We need to think about the ways the weapons impact us and prop up the inequalities of our societies. The few nuclear weapon states with power to impact millions of lives, the millions of pounds spent on maintaining these weapons that could be applied to addressing security concerns most impacting us, the lack of diversity among those who hold decision-making power, and the fact that the decision to use such catastrophic weapons is in the, has, in, the, in the hands of so few people. This is a complex systemic problem. It needs smart people from across different fields caring and thinking about how this issue intersects with different fields. It's a shared challenge, but also a shared opportunity to problem solve, engage, think long-term about global risks, and ultimately make the world a safer place for future generations. It also means more people should be involved and demanding an end of the cycle of inconsistency between government commitments and their actions, and to demand explanation for policy changes as we have just seen in the UK. After this conference, I encourage you to apply your minds on how to engage. Conferences are great, but this must be a process. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much indeed. We uh, invited you to start us off with a uh, keynote in, uh, introduction to current threats and challenges, and you have uh, absolutely fulfilled that already with your initial intervention, and I thank you very much indeed for it. Nick, uh, we'd like to come to you now, please. Uh, you, you have the microphone on the screen now. Very many thanks, um, and thanks to Oxpeace and to the conference organisers for inviting me to speak to you today. And it's great to be on this opening panel and following Des and, and with you, John. I'll draw on some of Des's remarks, um, but I want to talk a bit more about the problems and the possibilities for change, which, uh, as Des has intimated, seem really difficult at the moment. Uh, and I wanna do that by drawing on my experience of being involved in uh, the humanitarian initiative on nuclear weapons that led to the negotiation of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, or the Ban Treaty as it's often referred, uh, at the UN in 2017. I think the first thing I want to say is that rational argument uh, will only get you so far in trying to bring about change on this issue. And why is that? It's because, in my view, we are dealing with very deeply embedded cultures of nuclear thinking in nuclear armed states. And um, by comparison, uh, think about the way in which perhaps the Brexit debate seemed pretty impervious to rational arguments about the economic harm that would likely be caused by Brexit. And you start to get the idea of, of the limits of engaging in rational argument. And back in 1991, um, a US psychologist called Robert Lifton, working with a US political scientist and legal scholar, Richard Falk, uh, described this culture as nuclearism. And you rarely come across this term. Uh, I've been involved in nuclear disarmament at, a, a, at an activist NGO and, and, and scholarly level for many years now, a couple of decades, in fact, and you rarely come across this term. But I think it's really essential to understanding the politics of nuclear weapons. They defined nuclearism as follows. It is the psychological, political, and military dependence on nuclear weapons, 
the embrace of weapons as a solution to a wide variety of human dilemmas, most ironically, that of security. Uh, for those interested, I'll put the reference for that in the chat uh, at the end. So nuclearism then is a culture. More specifically, it's an ideology. And what we mean by that is that it's a system of meanings and principles that tell us what nuclear weapons mean in relation to ideas of the state, in relation to war, in relation to ideas of international order and to power in world politics. And we've seen how a set of meanings about nuclear weapons gets over time conflated with the very thing itself, the nuclear weapon. And we've seen how a set of principles about nuclear weapons end up becoming axioms of political life. So for example, the way in which the Trident system in the UK is always referred to by policymakers as the deterrent, as if somehow it unproblematically deters simply by existing. And we see the, the axiomatic claim that's made that Trident simply is the ultimate insurance of our security. And policymakers and military leaders and the wider publics get socialized into this ideology such that it becomes a common sense, something that's communicated and understood through a particular language weapons uh, and around the state and security, a language that then shapes and limits how we can think about and how we can talk these weapons, something that Dare's also referred to. But this ideology of nuclearism, something that is passed by a different set of understandings about nuclear weapons, and we might call this anti-nuclearism, the prohibition of nuclear weapons, ban treaty, I think is perhaps the most high profile iteration of this. And the ban treaty and what was what was called the humanitarian initiative on nuclear weapons that was initiated in 2010 and led to the ban treaties negotiation. Uh, they were both based on delegitimizing and stigmatizing nuclear weapons as unacceptable instruments of statecraft in world politics. And they are rooted in a quite different set of meanings and about nuclear weapons. So in the nuclear armed states, we see the focus of nuclear thinking of nuclearism is the weapons themselves. Uh, the state, uh, military competition with other states, proliferation of the military balances of power. But the humanitarian initiative and the ban treaty focus on different things, and four in particular stand out. The first of these is violence violence against people, not states or weapons, but people, in terms of the extreme violence against human bodies and human societies that nuclear weapons inflict, and the illegality and illegitimacy of that violence under international humanitarian law. The second focus of anti-nuclearism is on post-colonial relationships and resistances, primarily across the global south, a set of issues that rarely enter into the debate in, in the UK. But this is about resistances to nuclear hierarchy, inequality and discrimination in global nuclear politics that is dominated by the industrialized North. The third focal point is gender and gendered inequalities in the global politics of nuclear weapons. And this highlights the differential effects of ionizing radiation on women and girls, 
and associated risks of cancer and mortality from female-specific cancers, drawing on the experiences of those affected by the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and nuclear testing. It also refers to the absence of women in nuclear weapons policymaking and in nuclear disarmament diplomacy uh, and how that affects how policy elites think about and talk about nuclear weapons. But also in terms of gendered language in nuclear discourse that tends to normalize nuclear weapons in very masculinized terms of strength, protection, reason and rationality. And the final focus that I want to draw out is ecological in terms of the nuclear contamination of the natural environment in relation to human health and the planetary ecosystem. And this is underpinned by research that I'm sure many of you are familiar with that shows how a nuclear conflict involving the use of 100 Hiroshima-sized weapons in South Asia would have a catastrophic impact on the global climate caused by the vast amounts of smoke and particulates that will be released into the upper atmosphere. Thinking in this way about nuclear weapons and global nuclear politics isn't possible within the ideology of nuclearism. It is a different mode of thinking with different reference and different language. And I highlight the, these differences and ideologies because the possibilities for change lie in the ongoing contestation between the two, between nuclearism and anti And in many ways, this is what disarmament diplomacy is all about. In fact, Richard Fork, who I referred to earlier, described the Ban Treaty as full frontal rejection of the geopolitical approach to nuclearism. And we've seen how contestation of this type has driven change in other areas of global politics, like human rights, colonialism, and more recently, the climate crisis, as well as in related areas like chemical weapons and cluster munitions. And as Des said, civil society has been absolutely central to these processes. Now, the idea of contestation and confrontation between quite opposite, incommensurable positions like nuclearism and anti-nuclearism, in the end leaves little by way of middle ground. And that can be quite discomforting for some. But when it comes to the possibilities of nuclear violence, it is either accepted as something that is in the end legitimate or illegitimate. And we must acknowledge as well that debate, division, contestation, are vital to processes of change, and they are a necessary feature of the democratization of debate in nuclear politics. And this is something to which I think the Ban Treaty has made an important contribution. But it's also, I think, bigger than this too, because we can see how those involved in nuclear disarmament and the Ban Treaty have connected nuclear injustices, nuclear inequalities, and nuclear violence in world politics with a wider set of global hierarchies and inequalities and violent practices, not least in relation to social, environmental, economic and racial justice and change. And in fact, the future of, of the nuclear disarmament movement, I think, arguably lies in its closer integration with multiple movements 
uh, that, that are confronting global injustices, including on the issues of who gets to exercise violence over whom, by what means, to what ends, and on what basis. And when thinking about the possibilities for change, I think we also need to remember and acknowledge that the ban treaty and anti-nuclearism are pushing in the right direction. It might not seem so at the moment, um, but here I think it's useful to understand nuclear disarmament uh, as something that needs to be invented, invented and then sustained. And I think some of Des's remarks at the end of his, uh, of his uh, comments were, were speaking to this as well. I'll say a little bit more about this before I close. So inventing nuclear disarmament, I think, is about building on what already exists and about inventing new norms, new practices and new institutions. It requires innovation, it requires creativity and it requires lots of collective work. But a couple of things we can say, it won't be neat and linear. It will be messy, it will be contingent and it will be multi-causal so that we, we can't really know with any degree of certainty what will work and when until we get there. We can also say, I think, with some degree of certainty that it's going to be transnational. It's going to be done by lots of different people in lots of different places, in lots of different roles, pursuing a whole range of different ideas. And it's going to be a continuous process rather than an endpoint. And whilst there's nothing to guarantee that nuclear disarmament can't be invented, there's also nothing to guarantee that it will. But I think thought of this way, it becomes clear how much has already been achieved. At a very broad level, nuclear disarmament as an idea, an idea that kind of makes sense to us, that is firmly rooted in a much deeper set of ideas and institutions that are embedded in our global politics. So these include things like human rights, humanitarian law, the sovereign equality of states, development and justice, decolonization, limits to violence, environmental protection, and the criminalization of state aggression in world politics. And in nuclear politics specifically, lots of important things have already been invented, like the ideas and the institutions of nuclear arms reductions, like ending nuclear testing, verification, safeguards, non-use, non-proliferation, regional nuclear weapon-free zones, and the very idea of global prohibition itself. And none of these ideas and institutions are natural or, or predetermined. They have, they have been invented and they have been embedded, even as they've been pretty consistently contested. And we can see through that lens that nuclear deterrence and the ideology of nuclearism are also a set of ideas and practices and institutions that have been invented. And just as they have been invented, they can be disrupted, dismantled and uninvented through contestation that diminishes the power of nuclearism and that challenges cultures of nuclear thinking. And I don't know if Des knows this, uh, but the title for his speech at the Conference on Disarmament in 2008 that was originally put on the, on the Ministry of Defence website was laying the foundations for multicultural disarmament, not multilateral nuclear disarmament. It was on there for a couple of days until it was changed. But I wonder if perhaps that was closer to the mark. Um, now, the, the asymmetries of power uh, between supporters of nuclearism and anti-nuclearism are 
clearly formidable. Uh, and we've seen this in, in the pushback against the ban treaty from the nuclear arms states. And with that in mind, I think we have to accept that we're unlikely to change the minds of current policymakers that are socialized into or, or really enamored with nuclearism. But I think we can over time shape the understandings of future leaders and future voters about what is and isn't politically possible when it comes to nuclear weapons and doing so by building on what exists and inventing what's needed. So in sum, nothing is certain in nuclear politics. There are no risk-free nuclear futures as good friend of mine, Nick Wheeler, who I think in the, is in the audience uh, has, has stated. Um, but we do have agency, positive change does happen. The unexpected end of the Cold War being an important example. Uh, there are better ways in which we can organize our global nuclear politics that can involve the elimination of nuclear weapons. And we have come a long way towards a better nuclear world. Uh, and the ban treaty and what it represents, I think, is an important part of the process of inventing what we need for a world without nuclear weapons. Thank you. Nick, thank you very much indeed uh, for taking further along the line uh, the, the comments that, that Des made. And thank you very much indeed, Des, for laying things out in such a clear way. As you suggested, I rather suspect that, that pretty much all of those who are on this uh, webinar or web conference uh, would be of a similar perspective in terms of the wish to see an end to nuclear weapons. Um, but I want to try to provoke something of, of what uh, Nick was talking about in this debate, contestation, argument side of things, because I think he's right uh, to say that, that that's uh, really important. And so I'd like to pick up a, a number of things, some to, to kind of clarify and some for uh, perhaps for us to engage in a little bit of conversation with each other. And then uh, in a little while, we'll open it up to questions which have already begun to appear. Uh, on the uh, on the Q&A and chat. You have both outlined very clearly the increasing dangers of nuclear weapons. I increasing not so much um, perhaps just because of numbers, um, but because of distribution. Um, more states now have weapons and the possibility of weapons. Um, we all felt the Cold War was a bad thing, and it certainly wasn't a good thing, but at least at that time, largely speaking, there were two pillars that needed to engage with each other and negotiate a way of pulling back. I, I remember I, I used to work quite a lot, still work to some extent with the World Federation of Scientists, which originally was a number of scientists, some of whom uh, developed uh, the bombs that we're referring to who did not want their technology to be used, their science to be used for the technology of warfare, but the technology of peace. And one of the pieces of work that they did and were permitted to do by their paymasters in the, in the governments and the ministries of defense was to look at what would actually be the outcome if there was a nuclear war. How many people would die if, if there was a, a, a strike or a response to strike and so on and so on. And so they, they produced this material and their generals who were uh, running the show, we're very happy for the scientists to do that, and they exchanged the papers between uh, the USSR, as it was then, and, uh, and NATO. And uh, the generals looked at it and they said, oh my goodness, um, we knew this would happen to the other side 
they hadn't quite clicked that it was going to happen to our side. And so they passed it back to the politicians who were the paymasters of the generals, and they had the same response. And the result of this and many other interventions by people like, like our boys that just uh, was involved with uh, and so on, meant that people started to think about the conflict. And all of us kind of hoped that the end of the Cold War would take us forward. But in, in many ways it hasn't, because what it has happened is it has fractured things so that there are not simply two pillars anymore. There are lots. It, it's, like a, it's like a blob of mercury that's been whacked on the table and it's spun off into a whole lot of other areas, a bit like the so-called war on drugs in the United States. By taking out some of the kingpins, lots of other uh, lower level gangsters were able to spread the use and abuse of drugs. So I, I guess I'm keen for us to push back on teasing out, not what we would wish to believe to be the case, but what is actually the case about the human condition to which Robert J. Lifton, of course, referred in many of his books, including his work on nuclear. It seems to me that quite clearly the nuclear problem is an expression of violent political conflict, especially of all out war. I mean, I think almost everybody accepts that the context in which it might be used was one in which effectively an all out war was being contemplated. So are we suggesting that it is actually possible to move to a place in any foreseeable future where we can prevent violent political conflict? Or are we saying something else about all-out war? That it can be conducted in some other less harmful way or that it can actually be prevented? And this is not a theoretical question this past weekend, when we look at what's happening in Israel-Palestine. So what is it? How, how can we, if, if nuclear conflict is to date, perhaps the ultimate expression of violent political conflict, are we saying that that expression of conflict can be tamed? Or are we saying that violent political conflict itself is able to be contained, controlled, managed, or prevented in some way. Would either of you like to pick up that that query, that question? Uh, may I, I'm, I'm willing to do so. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I defer to Nick if he, if he wishes to do this. I mean, I, I just say this to you at the beginning. You know, I mean, we're all on journeys. I mean, I think probably everybody who's in this. Uh, um, and, 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 and this conference is somewhere and uh, moving towards the same destination. They hope that you know we all share, um, which is a much more peaceful world. Um, and and you know we are affected by our experiences, and um, and I think also we can all only make a limited contribution to this. And a, a long time ago, I gave up. And you know the work that I do, trying to tell other people how they ought to behave, and I spend most of my time, you know, in um, in, in dialogue and and quite a lot of tough dialogue across the Euro-Atlantic space, from Vancouver to Vladivostok, talking about issues of this nature with people, many of whom have, you know, have and have held a big responsibility. I'm much more interested in their perception of how we appear than my perception of how they appear, and I learn more. From that, so I, I mean, I can, I'm, can, I'm going to, I'm going to restrict my observations and try not to generalise too much about this. But 
you know, I mean, I live in a country here in the United Kingdom with a government who think they can do just what you have suggested. They think that we can, you know, that we can move to a world without nuclear weapons. Um, and and that, that's their assessment. You know, we have regular assessments of where the risks and threats to this country lie. And, and I cannot remember since we started to publish them, any of them saying that we are, there, that there is, a, there is a risk of an all out state on state conflict that we would be involved in. You know, I mean, we had pandemic at the top of that risk threat analysis for many years and didn't prepare well for that, as it turned out, but that's another discussion. Um, so that is their view. And even in this, um, in this uh, integrated review, and I have opened the relevant page here on my iPad beside me, we, there are two very strong paragraphs that express the government's commitment to the long-term goal of a world without nuclear weapons. So, so they have committed themselves to that. Successive governments have done that. You know, and then they spell out in the second paragraph what they will continue to do. The problem is that when I read that, they're not doing any of it. But nobody's actually asking them, you know. So, you know, every time I open my mouth in a political environment in the United Kingdom, I get accused of being a unilateralist, which is a kind of pejorative, right? Um, and I say, no, I'm, you know, I'm interested in multilateral nuclear disarmament, but, but I spend almost every day trying to achieve it. You know, what, what, what did you last do or ever do to achieve this ambition that you have for multilateral nuclear disarmament? You know, and, and I think that's so, so I, I, and, and honestly, you know, if you look at the immediate history, our history is deviled by conflict and violence, but it is much less than it was in the 20th century, and in particular in the second half of the 20th century, much, much less than it was. And that wasn't accounted for by the absence or presence of nuclear weapons, because this conflict has changed significantly. It's more interstate now than it was before. It's conducted in different fashions. These are the things that we need to be worried about if we want to get rid of conflict. But yet we spend so much of our resource on something that just creates a threat. It doesn't actually keep us any safer because we don't believe that we are at risk. You know, Nick and I both express, you know, what will the consequences of these, of the use of these weapons be? And the vast majority of our leaders want to avoid that as well. You know, there is no point in using a weapon system that impacts your citizens as badly, or in some cases worse, depending on weather system, than it will your adversaries. So. You know, we're, we're, in, we're in a world that we shouldn't allow other people to create the environment for the way in which we discuss it. We should challenge them. This is what you say you want to do. Tell us what you are doing about it. You know, ask every, everybody who's in here, ask their MP, what do you know and understand about this risk and threat? And what have you done to try and achieve it? Because you've all signed up to this policy. Thanks very much, Des. And as I said, we are reminded of dangers by the events of this last weekend, and I had a, a rather difficult discussion with some political colleagues yesterday who kept on about the two-state solution in respect of the situation with Israel-Palestine, which is something that people have been going on about for decades now, and we're not any closer to it. And in a sense, it's the same kind of thing that you're saying, that is, people keep mouthing the words about what they want to see without necessarily exploring the consequences of developing what is necessary to achieve that. And 
and that's the challenge and that, that that's a challenge for for all of us to pick up in terms of our thinking about and understanding these kinds of issues nick would you like to pick up on that on yeah that if, if if i can come in there as well i mean um first john i think you're you're your question presupposes a lot. Um, nuclear weapons is the manifestation of violent conflict. I don't think that's right. No, it's a uh, manifestation. It's not the manifestation. Okay, so nuclear weapons is a manifestation of of the, of the possibility of this type of of violent conflict. Um, I mean, history shows that states have acquired nuclear weapons for lots of different reasons, um, and not not just to deter this specific type of conflict of of all out total war of the type experienced um, uh, from 1939 to 1945. Uh, so the, it's, it's part of how we understand why states acquire nuclear weapons, but it's certainly not the sum total of reasons. States have acquired and retained, taken decisions to retain nuclear weapons for, for lo lots of different reasons, including around ideas of national identity and, and, and relationships with, with significant other allies as well as adversaries. Um, but I think the, the way you pose the question also implies that nuclear deterrence is the answer to preventing this type of, this specific type of conflict of industrialized all-out war between the major powers at the heart of the international system. Um, but there's a, there's a real problem with, with that in terms of demonstrating that that has in fact been the case. What we often see is, is a correlation between the existence of nuclear weapons after 1945 and then the lack of the absence of something like World War Two, and and we go from from correlation to causation, and say that it's nuclear weapons that have caused that, and no doubt they are part of the part of the answer uh, as to why there's been no no recurrence of something like World War Two, but people tend to to forget that have been, there have been other massive developments since 1945 that do a good deal of the explaining. I mean, we've learned from the horrors of World War Two. We've established the United Nations and an organized international economic and trading system. We've seen the process of decolonization of the sort of 150 or so years before 1945 continue. Major decolonization up to and including the end of the Soviet empire. And we've seen from the 1970s onwards really and really escalate in the post-Cold War period the, the, the processes of interdependence and globalization. I mean, as Dead said, Dead said, we live in a very different world to that, that nuclear age and, and the thermonuclear age that emerged in the 1950s. Uh, and for good or ill, this has knitted states and economies and societies together. So I think, I think in this context, we, we, we mustn't assume that nuclear deterrence is kind of unproblematically the answer to why haven't we seen something like World War II. Why, why that nuclear deterrence assuredly explains the absence of, of total war. I think what we need to ask, which is a question my good friend of mine, Benoit Pelopidas, asks, is what can we say about the added deterrence of nuclear weapons? There's an awful lot of stuff, an awful lot of very, very good, powerful reasons as to why major powers are not going to fight something like World War II again, irrespective of whether nuclear weapons are in the mix or not. Some very good, powerful reasons. What do nuclear weapons add to, to that sort of deterrent effect? What's the added deterrent value? That's the question we need to be asking. And I think it's very difficult to make a, a clear, concise case that sustaining a system of world security based on the threat of total calamity 
is either necessary or, or legitimate today. Um, I, I, I find that difficult to, to accept that there is a clear cut case that then necessitates taking the risks that we know are there. Risks of nuclear war that are baked into the very cake of, of nuclear deterrence. Um, and, and the idea that, I guess one last point, I mean, it's often kind of taken as read that the, the nuclear peace, as it's, as it's been called, um, from, from the, the, the end of World War II up to, say, certainly the end of the Cold War through, through that sort of 45-year period, that that was something anomalous in world politics and that, therefore, the correlation with the existence of nuclear weapons is really strong. But it's not, it's not anomalous. There have been plenty of periods of long peace between the major powers in world politics uh, of, of similar duration. So I think we need to be very careful when, when we're talking about nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence that we kind of acknowledge the assumptions that we're making and the claims that we're making on behalf of nuclear deterrence, all of which are really very contested. Yeah, I think one of the things that we need to be careful about is that we don't pick up what someone else says and assume that we understand it because it fits in with the arguments we've been making. You see, I didn't say anything about states and conflict. I said an expression of conflict. And one of the issues that I've been working on for quite a long time is the notion that we've got to move beyond the understanding of individuals and states to the complex systems analysis of relationships. And that conflict is an expression of a relationship problem, whether it's to do with individuals or states. So to say that something's an expression of conflict does not mean that it is the reason that a state gives itself for developing a weapon. And certainly what I'm trying to explore is not some justification of a kind that has been given or would be given. I don't think anybody on this call is, but it's absolutely clear that many of the things that we thought would lead to a resolution haven't. You mentioned the UN. The UN can't make a decision about anything worthwhile at the moment. The General Assembly is completely dominated by China now. Anything that you try to get decided just doesn't get decided in the General Assembly unless China agrees. And the Security Council can't make a decision on anything. Uh, so, uh, and when we talk about the multilateral system, it's in disarray. This is not a reality of 10 or 15 years ago, but it is a reality of today. And it seems to me that we've got to find a way of pushing our thoughts forward. Inevitably, of course, we're influenced by our own experience and, and, and my experience, and to some extent, Des is, is a little bit influenced by the Irish question, where the argument was perennially about those who wanted to remain within the United Kingdom and those who wanted an independent United Ireland. And we thought that was moving forward into a different argument about all being part of a United Europe, but that has started to fragment. But the key question really in the end is what kind of set of relationships? If we simply argue back and forth, we may not move forward. Even good arguments become weaponized. So for example, one of the concerns I have about the notion of an anti-nuclear narrative is that it simply sets itself up as another struggle against, against a previous argument rather than something that provides an alternative. One of the successes I think of the climate debate has been that alternative ways of producing energy are proposed. And I suppose the question for me, the implicit question that I was putting forward is, 
what is the alternative way of dealing with that aspect of the human condition which is expressed in conflict? What is the alternative way of dealing with that that we are proposing as distinct from what we are opposing about a particular expression of the so, I'm prepared to engage with that challenge. Yeah question good so so let me just disaggregate this a little right i, I mean i mean I, I think i think you know interestingly i think you know observing the two of you talking to each other you're both right about this i mean nick is right about this you know we and 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 you know i'm really struck at the beginning early in his excellent contribution he he drew he drew our attention to what i up until now have said that the weapons, these weapons dictate their policy, right? I mean, these weapons are more influential, their existence on the decisions that are made about their, cont their continuing dependence on them than almost anything else. You know, I mean, if, if you talk about reducing their numbers to anybody or disarming, the first thing they say to you is, you have no, you have no right to deny future generations the security that you have enjoyed from these weapons, right? So the, 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 the weapons kind of pen you in. Now, the, 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 I think the, the point is that, that that's not the case in other areas, which are areas of threat and risk, and you yourself identified one climate change, but that's not the only one. So, you know, we are, for example, you know, going to convene COP26, for good or ill, in Glasgow in some months to come. So this is a world conference which, where we have a common objective, you know, and we will seek to get the world to buy into that common objective and to agree a roadmap to it, whether that roadmap's adequate. I mean, I'm, not, I'm open all of this stuff. And that's not the only thing, you know, we operate across all of these barriers with countries that we feel we need to deter with nuclear weapons, on other areas of terrorism, we've done it in relation to the pandemic risk. So we know how to do this. The question, the question is why will we not do it for the shared objective that the, the official nuclear weapon states say they have, which is ridding the world of these nuclear weapons. And that is because of the nature of the weapons, right? Um, as much as anything else, once you have them. And also because we've allowed them to elevate countries into a position of particular power and a very small number of people who are very un un unwilling to give that up. So it is, you know, it is wrong to call these five nuclear weapon states the P5. It's not the nuclear weapons that qualify them to that, we believe, but actually it just may be that, that that's why they are there and they are the P, you know. So um, we know how to do that. And, and it's relatively simple, which is that you embark upon a dialogue of common interests. And we do that in many areas of international relations for particular purposes. So it's not as if we can't do it and we can do it to effect. You know, you can, you, you can get an American president to get, a, you know, to, get, to get the leader of China to agree in a particular area on something or to get the Russians to you know, or to get the, the Brits can get other people to do it. We can even get India and Pakistan on occasions to do it with us. But in these weapons, they have this sort of power of their own somehow that prevents us from doing that. And, and, and why we don't just do what we can do. 
you know, we come together and look for issues of common interest in terms of our security and start to work our way through this. And where we have done that, we have made the progress that Nick suggests that we have, which he's right about, you know. All of these, um, all of these successes in terms of disarmament and arms control, CTBT, NPT, all the rest of them that he, he, he indicated, with one or two exceptions, have involved nuclear weapon states, and in some occasions have been led by nuclear weapon states. So it's not, it's not impossible to do. We just need to put our minds to it, and we need to own the objectives politically that we say that we subscribe to. But in relation to these weapon systems, we can't do that. And, and, and Nick's analysis of this, the one that he shared with us, may be the right reasons for it. I'm not sure, but, you know, we just need to, you know, we need to mobilise people to start asking these people who make these decisions about these inconsistencies. Explain them to me, you know? I mean, yep. who are you taking us in this? And the weapons not only are a determinant of the policy, but they generate this threat intermingled with these new technologies. They generate this threat, which some of these people don't even understand. We have people, you know, writing artificial intelligence uh, programs that they do not themselves understand. And then we intermingle them with the command and control of these weapons. Well, of course, that's absolutely true. And, and we now have a situation where the artificial intelligence is writing its own programs, uh, which the people who set them up in the first place don't understand. So this is absolutely true and, and pretty terrifying. I, I, there are a couple of things that have been flagged up in the chat, if I could just refer to them before I come back to Nick. The first one is, is picking up on, on, on Nick's comments, but also referring to what you've just mentioned, Des, and that is the, the prospect of nuclear disarmament for the UK alone would probably mean the UK losing its UN Security Council seat. I, I might say that whether or not that's true, there's another, perhaps other question about whether or not if Scotland and Northern Ireland leave, whether England on its own can return, retain a, a UN Security Council seat. Uh, but that's a whole other uh, debate, um, th though not one that's irrelevant to Des and, and myself, given where we come from. Those that wanted the link to that Lifkin, uh, Lifton and Falk book, uh, Nick has kindly put it up. Uh, that's Indefensible Weapons, published in 1991, and, and I think you'll be able to get it on, on Amazon. So, but refer yourself there to the chat and you'll see the uh, the reference. Uh, has asked, are we allowed to reach out to the panelists by email after the event? I, I'm sure that the answer to that is yes. Uh, Des, I, I see a thumbs up from Nick. Are you content to be contacted, Des? Yes, absolutely. So that's, there's, not a, there's not an issue there. Um, and we're going to come shortly to some of the other questions that have been raised on the Q&A but I want to come back to Nick um, about, about uh, what, he, what I flagged up on this question of the, the nuclear versus anti-nuclear narrative and whether or not we can't move to something that goes beyond that oppositional kind of way of, of thinking. Nick. Yeah, I'll take your, your point, John. And um, yeah, apologies if I sort of misrepresented in my own mind the, the basis of the question that you were asking. Um, but... I mean, I think this is, as I said in my remarks, I think fundamentally nuclear deterrence is an ideology that needs dismantling. If, we, if we're going to get towards a nuclear weapon-free world, I mean, that, that, that just seems 
uh, 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 like a, a part of the definition of the process to get to a nuclear weapons free world. Nuclear deterrence as an ideology will need dismantling and with it, of course, the material infrastructure infrastructure of that. Um, but, but in terms of sort of what, what's the alternative then? Well, in the nuclear field specifically, you know, we've had countless blue, plausible blueprints about what we might do differently. And we've, we've obviously been, been doing a lot of this uh, over, the, over the last sort of four or five decades, you know, arms control itself, though that doesn't undermine the logics of nuclear deterrence, it certainly constrains it. Non-proliferation verification, the plans for actual nuclear disarmament that have been developed by a numerous international commissions and so on, the, the alternatives are there in the nuclear field, but I don't think that's quite what you're you're asking. I think you're asking more about how how can we. I don't, I don't know. I, mean, I think I think you're asking, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. Kind of what what should then given given that we're not going to eliminate human conflict, conflict between states, if we assume that we're going to still be living in a state system with with adversarial relations and competition and so on. And, and conflict isn't going to go away, then is, is, the, is the question you're asking kind of what should then replace nuclear weapons? That some, something needs to hold in check the escalation of violent conflict up to kind of all out war. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I mean, if it, if it is, then I think a perfectly legitimate response to the, to the question of what could or should replace nuclear deterrence is nothing. I think I think let traditional foreign and defence policy approach approaches to to dealing with crisis, crisis mitigation, crisis management take over, and prioritise the practices of conflict resolution that have developed significantly over the post Cold War period. I mean, there's there's tons of stuff to draw on. I mean, I mean, a lot of the nuclear confrontations uh, areas in 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 world politics where there is serious concern are around managing and resolving border disputes. Um, yet, you know, and, and, and there's a lot of work that has been put in in different contexts over time to resolve seemingly intractable border disputes. There are reconciliation processes, community level dialogues across divides, uh, especially those developed by women and mothers, um, processes of demilitarization, um, shuttle diplomacy, mediation, supporting organizations like the OSCE, um, we, we see things like conflict task forces and contact groups to manage uh, uh, and prevent, perhaps even transform violent conflict. So there are lots of choices of, about what we can do rather than rely on nuclear deterrence, uh, which is you know, deeply, a deeply problematic system to, lie, to rely on indefinitely. Um, but, but these are choices that states have to make to engage in and manage conflict using this range of tools as opposed to the tool of nuclear deterrence. And I, th I think as Des said, um, relying on nuclear deterrence in many ways, you know, the, the, the logic of the enemy ultimately deserving of nuclear annihilation, uh, I think inhibits the, 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 the turn to these other ways of, very established ways of managing and transforming violent conflict. Now, are, are any of these, you know, provably going to work in every case? Of course not. But then, is nuclear deterrence provably going to work in every case? Of course not. So we do come back to judgments on balances of, of risk and probability. But I think, given the the you know the seriousness of the consequences of certainly a, a large scale nuclear war, which would put at risk ten thousand years of human civilization, 
then I think we need to be asking the questions uh, around the, the necessity and the legitimacy of basing a system of world security on, on nuclear deterrence and, and the threat of nuclear war. I don't know if that gets more to your, where you were coming from, John, or, or not. I, I, I think we could, the three of us, have a really interesting and stimulating further conversation with just the three of us. And I really hope that we get the chance to do that, preferably over a, a glass of wine. Um, because I do think that there are some quite fundamentally important issues here. Um, you know, there is a sense in which we are actually in the third global conflict right now in cyberspace. If what is going on in cyber was going on in land, sea, air, or in space, it would already be regarded as a global conflict. But like some of the other things that Des was mentioning, 90% of the population aren't aware of what is actually happening at the moment. And of course, it has the crossover that you've mentioned uh, to, uh, to nuclear. Uh, with the question of the control of nuclear uh, with artificial intelligence. Um, but I would like to try to bring in some of the, the, the questions that have been posed by other uh, colleagues that are on the call. Um, uh, there are a number, and, and what I'm going to do is pick up two or three of them and ask you which of those you'd like to, to pick up on in our last few minutes. Uh, Nick, you, you talked about the nuclear question being addressed in a broader cultural context. Um, and, and the question is, Will the argument be most effective if we, if we frame it explicitly in terms of the existential risks, including the risks of, of, of nuclear itself, or in terms of this wider cultural question? Um, Tony Ode has, has, has said, uh, can we comment on the extent to which nuclear weapons are seen as a symbol, as symbolic of national identity? I think that's something actually that you've already, to some extent, uh, adverted to at least in passing theirs. One question which I think is really important, asked by Noel Crossley, um, and, you, and you mentioned at the start of your intervention, you're absolutely right, Nick. We assume rationality, she says, but should we consider the possibility of subver subversion coupled with radical ideology? Um, I, I think the broader question really that she's referring to, which, which you pointed up, Nick, is that thinking that people and countries act on an entirely rational self-interest basis is a misunderstanding of the nature of humanity. We are not merely rational. So there are a few a few questions which might perhaps pick up just a minute or two before we are coming to the end of the session. Um, which of you would like to, to kick off uh, first? Nick, would you like to pick up uh, for, for a minute or two and then we'll come to Des for the last minute. Yeah, we'll, we'll do, John. And thanks, thanks for the questions from the audience uh, as well. Um, in terms of, I mean, the rationality question is, is, is a furrow that has been well and truly ploughed in, in the arcana of nuclear deterrence thinking. Uh, and it's uh, rationality when it comes to nuclear weapons is a deeply problematic concept. But you know, e e even if we just kind of just look at, uh, as, as, as you were suggesting, John, look at how this applies to kind of human beings. I mean, when we look at human beings who rise to positions of authority, in nuclear armed states, as Des suggested, where you have, um, you know, it, it's it's the divine power of kings returned in the nuclear age. When you think of the the consolidation of the power to annihilate societies in the hands of a single individual, and th and then we know from lots of good empirical research that people in positions of authority are capable of extraordinary miscalculations, of extraordinary fanaticism, 
uh, and and research in psychology and political psychology shows us that you know we all have preferences for simplifying that we're pretty averse to things that are dissonant and, and ambiguous and that we are not intuitively good at estimating probabilities including the probability of violent conflicts escalating out of all control pretty rapidly up to nuclear war and that is just profoundly concerning i find that profoundly concerning um and you know we can we can think well the, the, the risks of this happening are are very very low um but the consequences are you know, supremely high. So how much of a risk do we want to take? G given what was understood to be at stake in the 90, late 40s and 50s, and given what we understand to be at stake now, compounded by other major challenges that we're facing that require collective transnational work, if we're gonna have any hope of dealing with them, not least the overlapping climate crises, then I, I, I think it, it becomes very problematic to put all your bets on, on nuclear deterrence for you know now and, and for the long term, and on on our national identity. I mean, certainly in, in the UK, of our our main political parties, in the Conservatives, but also Labour, have routinely wrapped uh, Trident and before it Polaris in, in the flag. Uh, and and framed the sort of state that they imagine the UK to be on the world stage as being quintessentially a nuclear armed state. And that is part of the particular culture of nuclearism or, or nuclear nationalism in the UK that will need to be, as I, I said before, kind of disrupted, destabilized, unpicked and, and separated. Thanks very much indeed. Des, if we can finally come to you. Yeah, thank you, John. So, I, mean, I think the, the, the integrated review actually, in many ways, is, is explains well the sort of contested environment the modern international environment is. And it makes the point that you make about, you know, the grey zone, um, war in the grey zone, and, and, and a, 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 an ability to be able to deal with it alone. Um, I mean, that's another global problem that we will need to work with together. But it seems to me interesting that, you know, that, 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 that very rational and, and, and helpful explanation, which is not comprehensive, but you couldn't be comprehensive without requiring people to read for the rest of their lives, but um, you know, identifies the cybersecurity and other challenges that you, that you mentioned, but, but somehow seems to think that the answer lies in nuclear weapons. You know, when there is no evidence to suggest that it does, when, you know, secondly, there is nobody you know, who understands the rules that do apply to nuclear weapons, it, it thinks that that, 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 that that sort of response would be proportionate. And actually, there's nobody believes we would do it. You know, so you, in, in, in that sort of decision, they undermine the whole, you know, the whole policy of deterrence by using, you know, the weapon system to deter something which it won't deter. Um, and, and nobody believes it. You know, so, um, and, and, you know, I think that's another outstandingly good example of the point that Nick was making, which is the existence of these weapons creates a mindset. They have to be useful. You know, we have to, um, and, and, and this IR, uh, you know, has one assessment of a clear and present danger, and that it surprisingly to me says expressly in one sentence that the government assesses that there will be a successful CBRN terrorist event in the United Kingdom before 2030. So, 
you know, we expect, therefore, that some of these materials, you know, the use of which in weaponry in two cases are completely banned, and in the other case, you know, is a consequence of nuclear, and nuclear itself will get into the hands of a, deter a terrorist and be used. Now, the problem there is terrorism, not these weapon systems. And there's no amount of deterrence is going to stop that from happening. You know, so it, it seems to me to be an example of, you know, a very rational, I think, analysis of what the real problems are. And then for some reason, we make this jump into this space of nuclear deterrence for an answer to it, because we don't have capabilities that we can say will, 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 will stop it from happening. So, I mean, I, I, on, on the broader the broader cultural context, I just bring it to a, a yeah, no, I just, I, just I, I, I mean, I agree that we should, we should look at these things together because they are all interrelated, but Nick made a very strong argument for a justice argument about this. There is a justice argument about this that we need to get up and running. And looking at the other questions that are there, there's a really interesting question about the development and deployment of the W76-1S uh, warhead. I'm personally not convinced that that will ever be built because I'm not sure the Americans will do the necessary that we need for it to be built because we can't, we can't develop it alone. German withdrawal, is, is asked from nuclear sharing. I mean, the Germans have been in this situation before and not been able to see this through, but you can still be in NATO and not be in the nuclear sharing position of it. And, you know, the country I live in, Scotland, and independence wants to be, you know, a non-nuclear member of NATO, if that is possible. I don't think it, it, it necessarily is, but, but, but it wants to be. Um, and, and if somebody asked a question about Kazakhstan denuclearizing, I think, we should look at what Kazakhstan, you know, has done in denuclearizing. But Kazakhstan was, to a large degree, denuclearized because these weapons really belonged to Russia, and they wanted them back. And the Americans wanted to get them back there because Kazakhstan couldn't look after them. But Kazakhstan has, has developed this into, I think, an admirable position in the world. But that's because of their experience of semi-palatansk and the damage that testing these weapons has done to their people. So they are, uh, you know, they're a very strong, people are very strong advocates for some of the things that we, that we are expressing concerns about because they have suffered from them to some degree. Yes, thank you very much indeed. And, and thank you to Nick as well. Uh, you've, you've really done a tremendous job in starting off the day. Nobody expects that we are gonna solve this problem in today's conference, much less in the introductory panel but I think we have succeeded in flagging up some of the important questions. And I'm extremely grateful to both of you for all the work of preparation and presentation, and indeed to those who have contributed uh, in the chat and in the Q&A. Uh, and hopefully we've been able to pick up some of those things. And you saw both Nick uh, and, uh, and Des are happy to continue the conversation by email subsequently to today. Thank you very much indeed. Let me hand you back to Liz.